fatherhood. It's how we keep our tribes and families strong. You've landed in the right place if you're ready for dad jokes, tips, and tricks on fun parenting. Also with interviews with some of the coolest dad entrepreneurs we could track down and have them share their strategies to tackling it all in business and life on The Dad Next Door. And now, your host, Mr. Dad Jokes himself, <laughs> Jason Centeno. Jay, from one Jay to another, how you doing? Fantastic. Thanks for having me, Jay. He's not your typical rock star influencer, but this guy is actually the godfather. Let me ask you something. Did they make up the word disruptor after like what you did? Because basically, like you're the originator from, you know, maybe there's somebody else before you, but like, if you own that hashtag, it would be, you know, it would be yours. Did anybody come before you disrupting you, disrupting us, disrupting industries? Is like that your like main, you know, kind of characteristic disruption? I think that label was put on me. I think the the, the, the most fun was when Wired Magazine wrote an article that I had the most fun, coolest job in the industry is what they said. I just refused to grow up and just figured out how to have a lot of fun and change the world. Change the world you have. I mean, you're... I mean, you were like the guy doing CDs and digital music before anybody. You're the guy who, I mean, you've done pretty much everything before everybody else. Way ahead. Like, did you get like a time machine? Is there a deal with the devil we don't know about? What kind of no. uh, ball are you working with? Here's the reason. Um, well, first of all, the best way to predict the future is hang out with the people that are coding it. Okay. So it's not that I have a crystal ball. It's Google's a client and Microsoft's a client and, you know, going way back working with, you know, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates and all these people before they were household names. But what I realized real early on, the second you go apply for a job somewhere, that means somebody else has had that job. So somebody has more experience or tons of people, you're not going to win. So on any given day, there's somebody smarter than me, better than me, better connected than me, better looking than me. It's just, I hate the dude. So I always figured out if I find a void, if I find something no one's doing, if I'm the only one in the world doing it, by definition, I'm the best in the world. Then all you have to do is hold on to that piece as long as you can until everybody else crowds in. And we live in an era of endless innovation. So I now teach people in Future Proofing You how to find those voids and how to, you know, monetize it and, and get successful. I'm holding up this book, guys, because as you can see, I mean... I beat it up and I'm still beating it up because there's a there's a ton of ideas in there. Future proofing you is pretty much the recipe on how to not go obsolete like tomorrow, <laughs> because that's pretty much how fast it happens these days. Jay goes deep into some things. And, and I really like how you put together the book because you took this kid, Vin Clancy, from I don't know what you would call him. A, I, I don't well, want to say a clown because I don't know him, but like this guy, this, this guy from England came here with nothing, had a lot of heart and you just, you, you made a deal with them. The story's great. I don't want to go too deep in it. I actually want people to just buy your book and, and get into the story because you do a great job. I wrote Disrupt You to pay it forward, to teach people how to have success. I teach how to, how to, how to build a startup at the university level. I've had students do a hundred million dollars. I mean, it's teachable. For some reason, our school systems still teach how to be a factory worker and there's no more factories. So that's why we have so many people suffering right now. And so how could I show people that anyone could do it? So I took a young man who grew up on welfare, was an immigrant, had no social safety net. And I mentored him one day a week for a year. I gave him no cash. I didn't introduce him to any business contacts. And he had to start a business that took zero dollars. And spoiler alert, if you're going to read the book, comes a self-made millionaire in 11 months. Then I distilled that coaching, that mentoring down to 12 truths. And if you follow these truths, you will be successful. This isn't a get-rich-quick scheme. I'm not trying to sell anything here. But Vin was willing to work harder for one year than most people will in order to live the rest of his life in a way most people can't. And the reason it's future-proof is after that year, he could take a year off. He worked hard. Not that you can live the rest of your life off a million dollars, but he knows whenever he wants to start up again, he has the skills and the skills that will work throughout his life, regardless of how much society changes. Is Vin a unique case study because we live in an age of everybody, like say Silicon Valley, it's fundraise and everything, everything's kind of done differently and done off of like 
you know, uh, VC funding and all this stuff where they make products that never make money, but they still sell them. Is he unique in that he came here just kind of like an, an open book versus maybe somebody who was from America that just is used to things being in a different way, kind of in love with the social media aspect of, of showing off and not really doing anything of substance. You got the guys who did WeWork that just sold a bunch of wolf tickets for everybody and then that whole thing collapsed. Is he unique? Do you find a lot, like not a lot of that anymore in today's kind of society? So I think, you know, millennials get a bad rap. I think there's always the stereotype of whatever. But as an immigrant, he already differentiated himself from the pack because he was obviously seeking something better in life. That's why one third of Fortune 500 companies were founded by immigrants or the first generation children of immigrants. Because when you see an immigrant working in a convenience store, sweeping the street, whatever it may be, that's not their identity. They recognize that that is a step on a path and a journey that they take. So he was on this on a journey. All that I did was trick him into having a growth mindset very quickly and then guide him to make the journey easier. And there's nothing in the book that's rocket science. There's nothing like, oh my God, I didn't, you know, how can someone do that? It's just, we're not shown it. And if you would have tell, told me growing up in Philadelphia in a row house, that dozens of friends would become self-made billionaires, I'd like, what are you smoking? I didn't, I didn't know what a millionaire was in Philadelphia. I didn't know what anything was. I, I still remember my parents pointing out some guy, that guy's rich, he owns a parking lot. And I look at a parking lot and there's nothing in it but ground. And I'm like, how is that rich? Like, it's just a parking lot. When you see these people become household words, you know, when you work with people like uh, Spielberg and, and Branson, and, you know, Elon Musk and everything, they're no different than you and I. There's only two things you need to be successful, insight and perseverance. In Future Proofing You, I teach you how to get the insight, how to find that idea to take to market. And then perseverance, if you can take that and cultivate it into passion, something that you're passionate about. You're passionate about adoption and children and, and helping the next generation. I started out like everybody else. I got out of school. I bought into society's promise that if you get good grades, you live happily ever after. And I got out in a recession. Well, wages have been stagnant in this country since 1982. Our factories now produce three times as much with one third the number of people. Half of all jobs will disappear this decade. So what we've prepared people for isn't success and, and not to get political, but when I watched what happened in our nation's capital in January, what I saw was thousands of people feeling left out, left behind, fighting over leftovers, when at the other half of it, there's a self-made billionaire every 48 hours. During the pandemic, there was a self-made billionaire every 30, uh, 26 hours. So what are they doing differently? Can it be taught? And you don't need any special skills. You can hire those. Steve Jobs created the first trillion-dollar company. He can't, couldn't write a line of code. He didn't have any money to hire Wozniak, who was probably arguably the foremost computer expert in the world at that time. So I show people how you do it, how to structure the deal, how to go through the steps. And the results are up to them. How did you become an entrepreneur? What was When so, did you decide that you were like, this regular nine-to-five crap is not for me? So... I didn't have a choice. I didn't set out to be an entrepreneur. I had two young sons. I was young and there were no jobs and I wanted them to have a better life. And that was all the passion and motivation I needed to never give up, never say no. When people told me no, it wasn't no, I can't do it. It's no, I can't do it with them. And you will make mistakes and fail and you will fail forward. And so when I got out of college, there was a movie, Star Wars. And I go, oh, my God, that would be the most fun career. I'll make special effects in Hollywood. I knew nobody in Hollywood. I wasn't from Hollywood. I didn't know how they made special effects. But it was as good as an idea as I could have. So what I needed is to figure out data. I need to figure out how to get into that business. And so I took an ad out in the Hollywood Reporter that described the job that I wanted as if I was a studio offering it. And then I got in a bunch of resumes. And those resumes told me two things. One. What does my resume need to look like? What do I need to learn and have and do? And two, here's a bunch of people with one foot out the door. So all those companies are going to have an opening. The modern version of that is there was a young man who got a job at a big ad company. He wanted to be a madman. He wanted to do creative advertising. And he's stuck down in the basement moving numbers around in a cubicle ready to shoot himself. Uh, 
And he looked and he realized nobody had bought the names of the top five creative directors in the industry on Google as AdWords. So for $9 or $10, he bought those keywords. And when they Googled themselves, as famous people do, and said, hey, I want to work for you. Click here to see my portfolio. Three of the five offered him jobs. And he, you know, quadrupled his salary and accelerated his life. Those are definitely some hacks. I mean, nowadays they cost stuff like that. Well, that's not growth hacking. That's a little different, but definitely some, some, uh, but, <laughs> some... But the, po the point of the story is we get caught up in making decisions on emotion. Anytime you can bring data into it, data won't steer you wrong. Data has no ego. There's always a way. And, and we're not talking about high tech data. There was a guy who the number one business that fails is a restaurant. So he wanted to figure out why do restaurants fail? And if you look into it, it's kind of a couple basic things. One, too many items on the menu. Nobody orders the fish. There goes your profits. Number two, turns out humans have this annoying habit of wanting to eat at the same time, lunch and dinner. So if you sit two people at a table for four, you can't monetize those two chairs. So he said, okay, I'm going to open a restaurant that only has three items on the menu. And I'm only going to seat full tables. You'll wait at the bar and run up your bar tab. So you're going to have to sit with strangers. Okay, that's an insane concept. Now he has to come up with what kind of restaurant would work with that. And for the past 60 years, Benny Hanna's has been killing it with that model. He didn't set up and say, I want to open a Japanese teppiyaki house. He said, I want to solve for why restaurants fail. That's powerful. It's, it's funny how you tell stories because we all kind of know these things, but then the reveal of like, oh yeah, that's what they did. <laughs> you broke it. You know, you kind of reverse engineer the story and then it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's simple. Now it's simple. Yeah. The guy did it, but it's kind of like, you know, why did I, you? I find people learn through stories. I mean, another modern example is I had a client that wanted to take on Victoria's Secret. They had a better supply chain. They were not going to have retail stores. They could do it online. But they wanted a Hollywood celebrity. They wanted a woman to be the face of the company. So, you know, who do you hire? The big names are super expensive, this or that. I said, data. And what are you talking about? I said, well, without permission, we'll run a whole bunch of ads out there with different celebrities' pictures. Within a thousand people seeing them, you'll see the click-through rates and you'll know who it is because is it somebody with, with big boobs, small boobs, young, old, single, married, chase, slutty? I mean, come up with a million attributes, but why not have the answer? So when we had the answer, we then went to the talent agent to find a talent and they pitched us this name. Now nah, we can't afford that. This name, blah, blah, blah. And by the time they got to our name, we go, okay, I guess what, what she want. And we got it for nothing because we knew the value. Fast forward, Netflix doesn't share how many people watch their shows because they don't want the creators of the shows charging more money. So data is the secret to everything. Entrepreneurship running your family, like was this passed down through generations? Were you the first? Did the kids get um, So my dad was a Philadelphia public school teacher. Shout out to Lincoln High. Then he decided to open a mom and pop restaurant. And that's what he did uh, his whole career. And so in that sense, yeah, he's an entrepreneur, but he never scaled beyond the, he's got to be in the building. You know, they figured out how to have two restaurants, mom at one, dad at the other, but they couldn't get to the next scale. And you, you learn a lot dealing with the public. I spent a lot of years working in the restaurant as a kid. Uh, but no, I, I didn't set out to be this entrepreneur. I didn't have a choice. And so you keep on trying stuff. And once I discovered be the best at what you do or the only one doing it, everything accelerated. And then I got to be an entrepreneur. So I got to run giant corporations with, you know, 300,000 employees doing billions of dollars a year. So now I understood how those companies think. And that's what led me to write Disrupt You and Future Proofing You because I've sat in the empty room and created things, you know, like LinkedIn and, and, and the first auction that you know is eBay, et cetera, et cetera. But I've also sat in the boardroom of giant multinationals and see how dysfunctional they are and why it's so easy for you to compete with and beat a multi-billion dollar company. What is the, if you had one sort of golden rule about how to do that in a nutshell, how could someone say be Google at some, you, you know, because you work, you work with them. So this, the simple thing is you got to realize that the big companies are just focused on their big competitors. 
they don't see you, the little pipsqueak, doing anything. The other thing is everybody thinks CEOs, public CEOs, make a boatload of money. Not true. They have modest salaries, but they have an incentive package. If they can move the stock, they literally back the big Brinks truck up to my house and just pour the money in. So now that I'm not a public CEO, I can tell you what no CEO will ever tell you. They don't think about the shareholders. They don't think about the customers. They don't think about the employees. They think about what the board's paying them to think about that carrot, that they're going to get tens or hundreds of millions of dollars if the stock moves. So how do you make the stock move? Either you're really brilliant or you just cut spending. So they're not developing next year's product because they don't know if they'll still be CEO next year. They've cut out all the spending. So when some startup has what they should have been working on, they gladly overpay, which is why you're able to take companies with no revenue and sell them for hundreds of millions of dollars. Because the development costs and everything they would have had to pay to do all that. If they would have spent years losing money, missing the numbers and not getting that giant check. And they, and I, had, I, I was CEO of a, of a little ad platform at the time when nobody's watching television ads anymore. And make a long story short, the company was ready to be closed. Investors had invested $8 million in it. They were down to one month's payroll, and they had 30000 in lifetime sales of the company. 18 months later, News Corp bought that for $200 million. You have to understand the game. You have to understand deal structure. And so I try to teach this because, let's face it, the pandemic wiped out the middle class. And you cannot have democracy without a middle class. So unless we teach people how to be future-proof, how to really take control of their life, it doesn't end happily. And so if you're going to a job that just pays you enough to show up but not enough to care, if it's not letting you raise your family in the manner that, that they deserve, what's stopping you? If it's fear, I address that in the book. If it's you know lack of knowledge, here's the truth. And I've done all the research. People with higher IQs don't up, end up wealthier. People that go to four-year universities don't end up wealthier. Pretty much the one attribute is persistence. Everything you own, wear, look at, every movie you've been to was created by a stubborn person. History books should be renamed the history of stubborn people because those are the only people that ever make change. So one of the things in your book that was really eye-opening that I probably definitely, well, I definitely got to do more research is the whole deal structure part. I, I imagine that that's probably a lot of people would be scrambling for the right, I guess, lawyers and, and uh, deal makers to, to help them on their journey. Um, Law lawyers don't make deals. Lawyers paper your deal. It, it starts out real simple. So in the case of Vin, the young man, he wanted to do social media marketing for people, millions of people that already do it. And if you're uh, a young kid on welfare, you're not suddenly going to get a phone call from Coca-Cola to do our social media marketing, right? So he just knows other broke people. So the first thing was fill that void. Just like I said, be the best at something. Well, find something that people are talking about. Instead of being this general, I do social media marketing, you're the best at doing social media for this one little area. And even if you have to get your first client for free, the second you have that client, you now have what's called a case study in MBA speak. And now you can go to everybody else in the field and show the results you're getting and they'll pay you whatever. So what clients were paying Vin for $500 or $1,000 in his first month, the next client's paying him $30,000 a month for the same amount of work because he's a proven commodity. And once he gets enough clients that he can't take anymore, then he can sky's the limit if he can deliver. And so that's what it really comes down to. And so if you're being a consultant for somebody and they want you to do marketing so they can sell 10 widgets and you say... If I sell 20, will you give me a bonus of X? I'll go, sure. And if I sell 100, will you agree to keep me on for a year and give me a million bucks? And they'll go, sure, because they don't believe it's possible. So it's all how you structure the deal. So he was brand new. Did you coach him through asking for those asks or was sure. there? Sure. Okay. He, didn't, he didn't have that experience. And But one of the things that he came up with on his own from the, the things is he got to a point where he just didn't have the bandwidth for the low ticket clients. So instead of saying, hey, I don't have it, time to take you on, he developed a bunch of people to farm the work to and getting a commission right off the top. So now he has multiple revenue streams without having to do multiple amounts of work. Yeah, it's kind of a reverse, uh, well, 
not a reverse affiliate marketing. It's, I guess, I don't know what you would call that, but <laughs> yeah, getting a piece of the action. So let's talk some dad stuff. So I know you have two sons and, uh, you know, Super proud of them. As, as a busy dad with six, um, it's funny because people that have ever been on Zooms with me have definitely seen them passing through Zooms and lots of <laughs> sometimes, you know, you were building up these businesses, you were consulting, and of course you had to have some concentration. Tell us about the little game. <laughs> the- so back before anybody worked in their home, I, I wasn't going to spend the money on overhead. I ran my first companies uh, out of my house for almost a decade till my kids went to school. So we played a game. If the phone rang, whoever stayed quiet the longest got a prize. And uh, my kids were into it. I also thought it was important for them to understand what dad is doing and why he's not with them. So it wasn't this black box of dads go off and do something and you don't know. And I'd bring them in. And when we had an office, I'd have them come in and always work on something. Now, it's kind of cool. I was a dad when my kids were in elementary school. I was one of the largest makers of video games. I made at one point had seven of the top 10 video games in the country. So they got to be part of that. When they were teenagers, I ran the world's music company. So, you know, you got to go backstage and, and meet the things and, you know, um, it all and, if it, and, <laughs> and if it was meeting a president or, you know, doing something and, you know, I'd take them out of school to, to do it with me. Um, fast forward, I believe kids are sponges that if you just throw enough stuff and expose it to them, you don't know what's going to stick. Both of them went into entertainment. You know, I used to be president of Universal and Sony, and, and I didn't open doors. I didn't, you know, one's a, uh, a movie writer. You could be anybody's kid, and it doesn't help you. Either the script sells or it doesn't. And if you saw last year, uh, Pokemon Detective Pikachu, second highest grossing movie, the Avengers uh movie beat it that was my benji is two series on disney right now he's got a bunch of movies coming out i'm in awe and my other son is creating series uh and is exec with disney so they're both living their dream doing what they like and the secret is never ask a kid what do you want to be when you grow up wrong question what problem do you want to solve when you grow up at every stage of life kids can see things that are unjust incomplete need repair in the world. I tell the story in Future Proofing You, but my best friend was lucky enough to get hit by a swing in elementary school and knock out all her teeth. I say lucky enough because she was miserable, I'm imagining. And when the, the dentist gave her all new teeth and put her smile on, she wanted to spend her life giving people back their smile. And she's a dental surgeon. So I never had that epiphany of here's my calling. I want to go, you know, do something. I still don't. I just basically knew I wanted to make a difference wherever I could. And the first priority was taking care of, you know, the family. The next priority is taking care of everybody else's family and the planet. Kids are in the industry kind of, uh, well, you've touched on all those industries. You've been in music and you've been in art and you, you're a great artist. So it's great to see that they're they're still doing something creative, obviously, because that's the, yeah. some, both of them are doing. And you as a creative, like, I'm pretty sure you're proud of that. So that's pretty awesome. What does your daily routine look like right now? I mean, you don't have them with you, obviously. And I kind of, you know, this show kind of try to dig into dad entrepreneurs life. How do they balance? But like, you're a busy guy. I mean, you're you're on a lot of boards. Um, I'm not. I mean, are you a CEO of anything right now, or are you just kind of like you're, you're consulting in a lot of places? Uh, I'm exec chairman of a company that's solving a, a giant issue. So I didn't want to run another company. Been there, done that. Um, but an engineer who had worked for me 20 years ago started a company called Greenfield Robotics. And the simple simple story is, a hundred years ago, somebody had this incredibly stupid idea that the best way to grow food is to put a bunch of poison on it to kill all the bugs and all the weeds and all the small mammals and birds, but it would never affect us. And and now with huge cancer rates, we're paying the price for that. And the weeds are getting resistant to all these things and the chemicals are out of control. So he had the idea, what if we make small little robots that go up and down row crops, think of corn and soy and milo, and just cut out the weeds. Think of Roomba for a farm. So now the farmer's growing organic. He makes 40% more per acre. It's robots as a service. He doesn't have to buy them. And for less than the cost of the chemicals, they can make healthy food. Number two, there's no chemicals running down the Mississippi, killing all the fish in the Gulf of Mexico. And the most important, 
not only is the poison out of our food, but because you don't have to till the soil and break up the weeds, the single largest source of carbon in our atmosphere heating up our planet is farming. It's not factories, it isn't cars. So if we can now stop that, that's 16% of all greenhouse gases. So this one little company can give us healthy food and a healthy planet. How could I morally obligate it as a parent, as a grandfather, not do everything I can to make sure they're successful? So this, so this company, these, these um, was a Greenfield Robotics, right? Robotics. You got these little farm room cut in the fields. Now, do the farmers, do they have to control these things? Or these are, these are rented out, so they don't even have equipment costs. They're just kind of rented out and serviced by... They don't even have to rent it. Uh, it's, it's a service. The Greenfield truck comes to the farm, and you got to realize you only have to de-weed a couple times a season. Oh. All the robots let themselves out the back. A drone maps their farm. They go up and down. They do their stuff. They go back on the truck and they go to the next farm. So the farmer doesn't have to learn how to do anything. Damn. And the, the response from farmers has been phenomenal because they make more money. They don't like handling these carcinogenic substances. The stuff dicamba is so bad that, I mean, you can read up on it. I don't want to get sued by the chemical companies to make this stuff, but, you know, there's a reason why other countries won't allow us to sell food to them because they've outlawed the poisons that we're ingesting and giving to our children. I know that carbon credits are a big deal to corporations. Do you guys, are you able to kind of like monitor that, prove it, and then maybe even sell those carbon credits back to some of these bigger plate, bigger Were you, you spying on our last board meeting? Um, no, but I'm working on something similar. That's why I asked. Um, here's, as I ended the book, uh, the last chapter in, in Future Proofing You, I talk about sustainable capitalism. So whether people like it or not, governments are going to have to come up with rules or otherwise life ceases on the planet. It, it, it's kind of not about quarterly earnings anymore, but there's profitable ways to, to participate. And that is one area that uh, will be a huge industry. And, you know, blockchain makes it easier to, to, to track and to deal with. And so, yes, it, it's something in the roadmap. But right now, you know, the easy, the, the, the first step is showing, you know, you know, one acre at a time, the difference in impact that it can make to farms bottom line and to getting healthier foods. And here's the other thing that people don't, and, and I didn't grow up on knowing anything about farming. So my CEO is a third or fourth generation Kansas farmer. The food that we get at the market looks the same as the food that our grandparents had, a tomato, a corn, or whatever it might be, but they're less nutrient dense because we have basically pulled every last nutrient out of our soil. So until you get into what's called regenerative ag, where you're not tilling the soil, where you're letting these things do it, you're not really getting the benefit of why mom told you to eat your vegetables. You're getting a thing that looks like it's good for you, but the goodness has been diluted out of it. Yeah, I think people use the word organic way too liberally um, because <laughs> I it's it's one of those things. But I mean, yeah, if you can definitely um, if you could know the the actual whole process of the farming right. and and track even on the blockchain, maybe that's a thing now. You can yeah. track and, and, and forget all that that complex. As a little boy, I will tell you that the Jersey tomatoes my grandmother grew on her stoop in Philly, in Winfield, were still the best tasting tomatoes I've had in my life. You know, there was a time where we were all closer to our food and that time's gonna come back again because food prices are gonna skyrocket. But, but, you know, I digress. Dads can make a huge impact, not just by being examples, but by showing what you can do with your life in a way that impacts beyond the four walls of your home. And the more you do that, the more you're raising a next generation that will take the mission further. I was about to ask you what's your best piece of life advice to other dad entrepreneurs, but you just answered it. <laughs> so you took, you took my glory there, but now um, I, I got plenty more questions for you. So I got, I got a, I got one that's probably going to, throw you off a little. So what's one weird thing most people don't know about you? What's one weird thing? I paid my way through college as a professional magician. I'm a member of the Magic Castle in Hollywood. 
When I was a little boy in Philadelphia, I saw a magician and I saw the effect he had over people that, you know, he, he could get you to suspend reality and actuality. That's kind of how I've made my career. I don't live in reality. I know what's coming next and I, I can, I can make that happen. So, um, and then you touched on my painting. I never let people know that I was a painter. Um, but in the pandemic, I believe that a growth mindset is key to success. It's the number first truth in the book. So how could I show people during this horrible time something positive? Now, obviously, if you got afflicted or people died, it was a horrible, horrible thing. But if you didn't, it was a gift of time. You know, January before the pandemic, I was in four continents, 12 countries. I've been living that lifestyle for decades, always on the plane. So now I would be home and I thought we'd handle it better. Maybe I'd be home a month or two. I didn't know it'd be, you know, a year. So I committed that I would paint a painting a day of what I was feeling, what was going on and share that. And I did it just so show people what you could do with focusing your time. What I didn't expect to happen was to hear from galleries and to hear from art collectors and suddenly have a solo show in New York and get commissions. And I'm just uh, amazed people like my art. So are you going to NFT them joints or what? I'm, a, I'm about to announce an, an NFT that I'm doing. I'm taking a, a different uh, approach to it, but uh, one that uh, has more thought to it. I'm interested in hearing about that because uh, the world is wide open, but a lot of people are just making like junk um, and I don't understand it. But I, I've, I've seen and heard... Um, I guess explained a whole lot of cool things that people can do with them and embedding so, codes and and so and mo most of what's out there is just junk is a kind word but uh, since I'm not planning to start another business I'll tell you somebody will do this because this is the best best example that I could come up with right now you ever been to a rock concert you ever buy a t-shirt swag yeah I've bought swag I don't so, know if it's a so why did you buy it you bought it to show that you were there right correct so now imagine that you're going to a Springsteen concert, and when you buy the T-shirt, you get an NFT with it. Now, each concert you go to, you're getting another NFT. So now, when Springsteen goes on tour, you can say, anybody that has 50 NFTs can come backstage to the meet or greet. You're there with your wife. She's a huge Springsteen fan, and you got 49 of those suckers. You're going to be on your phone right there with who in the crowd will sell you one of theirs so you can go meet the boss. So it's a way of expressing fandom. It's ways of showing who's been somewhere, who's been the most. Now you can see an, a value to a virtual good to allow you access, to allow you status. And you will now see in all aspects of sports fandom and everything else, NFTs being used as a way to, to do that. Yeah, I mean, the stuff I've heard was like if you had a collection of, you know, a guy made 60 pieces, he would plant um, a piece of code or a piece of a message in all 60 pieces. And then when they're all bought, then all the people can come together and assemble that one, those pieces together. And that NFT would give them like a special message or code or something special to just those 60 people, let's say, or another one. Um, I mean, on just the chain of evidence, like if someone famous bought a painting from me and then it's like okay that person's the art that passes along you get to see all the all the cool and famous people that owned it along the way sort of like an antique and stuff like that so there's a, there's definitely a ton of uses for it and I'm, i can't well, wait to on, on art french law about art is different than copyright in this country and so nft allows you to do something that the, that the french want to have happen but now you can do it which means if somebody buys a painting of mine and they then sell it for a bunch of money. If it has an NFT attached to it, every time it trades hands, I they get 10% forever. So the artist can continue to make money from their art. You know, it shouldn't be that some you know scalper mentality goes and buys everything and that artist suddenly dies and now they make a ton of money. It should be that you know there, there's some revenue stream back to the creators of art. Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, you know, it's, it's a wide open world. I'm interested to see which way it goes, but your idea is definitely cool. Uh, what's, I'll tell you what, what's one question that you're like, you do a lot of interviews. What's one question you're tired of people asking you? <laughs> what am I tired of people? I, I, I really just appreciate people asking, you know, I, I, I really don't, don't have one off the, off the top of my head. I mean, that's um, okay. It's okay. You don't have to. I mean, it's great that nothing, but you know, 
you you have a, a an even temperament. I, I can imagine that uh, some people might get one thing that I can When I ask that question, it's, it depends who who gets it because there's people that might have a certain level of fame, and it's like people are always asking me this one thing, and it's like the next question I follow up with is usually. All right. So what's one question that you wish people would ask you, but they never seem to ask you? I've been pretty transparent, you know, and, and authentic out there. When I when I made the decision to give up my privacy to help people, I, I, I live as an open book. So there's nothing that, that people haven't asked me or, or, or this or that. Um, you know, can't can't. I wish I had a, a good canned answer for you. Really, really can't think of anything. What's one of the things that you really tried to make happen that, that didn't happen? You know, you know what are some what are some of the not the financial failures, but the big ideas you could have make happen? That, that's probably a more interesting topic. Are there a lot of them, or just like one oh. that? I mean, you know. Okay, so what's your what's your hit ratio? Because I think Mark Cuban said it best. Was like, if I got a twenty percent kind of success rate, I'm still doing good. Like, what's your kind of standard of like success? So, so, so I hired Mark back before he had a dime. Um, Didn't know that. ambitious guy. Yeah. I built the first social network 10 years before Facebook that hit a million members. And he did the, it was a called animal house. It was for college kids to find the unofficial stuff about We've got a million college kids to join. And he ran the sports. So you could listen to college sports anywhere in the country. Back then you could only, if you lived in Philly, you could hear, you know, about temple, but if you lived in somewhere else, you couldn't. So that was the genesis of what he sold to Yahoo and how he made his first billion. If I have a 1% hit rate on ideas, that would probably be high. I am constantly coming up with new things, whatever, and then you take them to a certain stage. I mean, uh, once capital's committed, my, my hit rate's, you know, nearly 100%. Um, but in the early stages, there's some things that you just can't. Um, I came up with a solution to bring back Detroit and, and dead cities. And, and I, you know, sat down and with the president to, to solve this. And I just couldn't convince the powers that be, you know, that I was right. And it would, it would change, you know, our nation instantly and make the, the most adverse places in the country, uh, the most sought after places to live. How long ago was that, that, that kind of got dumped? That, that was about eight years ago. So the concept was this, your big giant companies have a shortage of engineering talent. So they'll either hire a bunch of engineers overseas to do it, or they try to get visas so they can bring engineers to work here. And we've limited that for some strange reason because they're not taking anyone's jobs. There's a shortage. So instead of stopping those jobs from coming here and having, you know, I, I've run engineering teams all over the world because I can't bring the people here, why not tie those visas to empowerment zone zip codes? So Microsoft, you can bring in 2000 engineers from overseas, but they have to live in Detroit, in downtown Detroit or whatever you do. You already have the plumbing, you already have the buildings, you already have the infrastructure. Your locals can now have thriving restaurants and clothing stores and, and everything that you need. And so you can bring back these urban areas that have the infrastructure by targeting that you can have these workers if you bring them into those zones. Sounds like what no one loses. Sounds like what the Zappos guys did in in, in Las Vegas or almost you know pretty much accomplished a version of that. Seems like yeah. it wasn't engineered, but it, it, it could work. Yeah. So um, you know, it seemed like the easiest way to solve a whole bunch of systemic issues. Oh, yeah. But, you know, politics and governments and bureaucracies and other people's interests, of course. But we're not here to worry about that. So you're uh, your top big, big brain guy. Like, are you in any masterminds of any kind or is it just boards you're on stuff like that? Like, who do you who do you converse with and, and, and regularly uh, sup with or, or talk to that's you know, helping you, helping you, uh, you know, grow, I guess. As I said, the best way to predict the future is hanging out with the people that are coding it. Um, I, I don't, first of all, I don't do masterminds. I don't do teaching. I'm not, I'm not doing anything to try to monetize this. I have free workbooks on my website, jsamet.com, so people can get the most out of this. The only reason a book costs you about the price of, you know, a happy meal is, 
because I work with publishers so that they can do distribution. But um, yeah, I don't go to that. I'm, I'm, my Facebook feed and my Twitter feed doesn't show or Instagram what people ate and pictures of, you know, hamsters eating tacos. Um, there's a, a, a group of people that want to show off when they come across the most interesting article in some obscure journal or some piece of knowledge that the community doesn't have. And you just go down that rabbit hole of learning. I mean, I learn so much from the people around me every day. Uh, and so that's what I find stimulating. The people around you in Greenfield or just like in your house or like where you rub shoulders? Because you live in California. and I'm all, all, all Online. I mean, we're all in the same community. We're all, we're all connected. So, yeah, there was not a whole lot of difference between me and my peer group of friends pandemic and post-pandemic. I mean, you're seeing people occasionally when you bump into them somewhere around the world, but most of the time it's what we're doing right here. So, you know, up your game, surround yourself with people that are challenging the system, that are making a difference, that are trying to solve problems because it'll rub off on you. About the book, I know you wanted to to offer something um, regarding the book. So, you know, guys, I, you know, if you're watching this, um, definitely a book worth having in your library and beating up like this. I guess you said some downloads you'd like to offer. People. Yeah. So on both on both the books, double plug on both the books, you're, you're reading, you get a dense lot of information that helps you go, yeah, 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 and then you get to the next chapter, and what you read in the last chapter tends to go out one year. I wrote workbooks that one's thirty two and one's forty pages. They're free. That you can, after each chapter, you can do exercises to start mapping your future, to start making a plan. If you don't know where you want to be in five years, how do you expect to get there? Right? And it's just one step at a time. And I show you the steps to success. You have to do the work. And there's no shortcut, so to speak, but you can avoid a lot of the pitfalls and pain and mistakes that most people have made. So why would you make the same mistakes? And why not, you know, give yourself a boost? And it's not like going to four-year college where you're going to graduate with a mortgage but no house. It's literally tried and true stuff that, that's worked for thousands of people. So the workbooks are jsamet.com, which is uh, up there. And you just click on the link and, and uh, you know, I, I love to see what people do with the information. And, and I, I've heard from thousands of people, and that's what pushes me to work harder to, to try to make a difference with the time I have left. I think one of the, I think the, one of the greatest parts of the book is, and it's probably the hardest too, and it has to do with mindset, but more importantly, problem solving is the exercise, the 30 day problem challenge, problem solving challenge, because, you know, because of my, you know, because you need the right mindset, we live in a society where everybody's complaining about everything that's wrong, but they don't offer solutions. And I hate that. I hate Anybody coming to me talking about this is a problem. It's like, well, if you don't know how to solve it, shut up or give me or give me something that can or an idea. Otherwise, stop complaining until you do, because it just takes it's just negative energy. It doesn't help anybody. But like right. that, that shift right there of taking just looking for problems. So the, bi okay? the biggest yeah. the biggest change is if anybody's listening to this conversation and you have problems in your life, you're halfway there. Because entrepreneurs don't sell things, they solve things. You solve for five people, you have friends. Solve for a million, you're rich. You solve for a billion, you change history. So odds are the problems you have, other people have the same ones. And you don't have to invent the flux capacitor. You don't have to, you just have to take something that's being used over here to solve this problem over there and all the riches flow to you. And so teaching people to see that way, to get out of the blinders that they go through, we, we go through so much of our life on an auto mode that we don't think that we're missing those opportunities. So think of obstacles as opportunities in disguise, and suddenly your world is ripe with possibilities. I mean, my favorite example for a parent, it happened to be a mom, not a dad, in Future Proofing You, is it's a school night, middle of the week. Your child has to make some poster board thing to show tomorrow at school. It's 10 o'clock at night and they mess it up and they're crying. You know, mommy, mommy, please buy me another poster board. Please go to the store. Please, please, please. So the mom goes to the store and she gets it, but she doesn't want to do this twice. So before she gives the poster board to her, her daughter, she makes little fine lines on it so the daughter can write on it straight. The next morning, she's talking to her sister. goes, why don't they sell this? Make a long story short. 
They go, they get themselves a patent for that, putting lines on a piece of poster board, uh, license it to the biggest poster board company, and they made about $5 million. No employees, no capital to raise, no factories. But then they get robbed at first. And then... yeah, that's why I didn't want to go through the whole story of <laughs> what it takes. But No, they need to because that's really like that's 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 the most interesting wrinkle in that because people are always like, I want to protect my idea. But like, so, so, so they, they had the patent. The first guy went and, and tried to rip them off. So they went to his competitor and the competitor says, OK, if we sue them and we win, can we work with you? And they go, sure. I mean, so there's, there's there's another woman who's now become, become become famous to people that she worked at this conservative sales company where she had in Florida, where she had to wear pantyhose. And it's hot and it's sweaty and you want to wear sandals and you can't wear pantyhose. So she finally figures out a way to do something different with, with, with pantyhose. And she goes to all the makers of the stuff and they laugh at her idea. One guy literally ripped up her card. She didn't have money for lawyers. She didn't have money for anything. She went to Barnes and Noble and bought patents for dummies. You can't make this stuff up. Filed her own patent. And... Sarah Blakely and Spanx has been a multi-billion dollar company. She's a multi-billionaire off of just that one insight. So insight and perseverance, folks, everything else can be hired. And if you hear me talking a lot about technology, you're in a tech business. I don't care what your business is because we're all interconnected. That's where you find information. That's where your customers are going to find you. So this is a question I, I sort of ask everybody and, and you certainly are going to do this in some capacity, but how do you want to leave your mark in the world? What do you want your legacy people to be to people to remember you by your work, your personality, your children? Like what's that look like in your head for you to be happy and say, I did that. If you know, if you happen to attend your own funeral and, and hear your own eulogy, like what would you want people to say? He looked amazingly good for 140. Nice. I, I don't care if I'm remembered. What's more important to me is, am I doing the most with the time I've been given? I don't believe in reincarnation. I don't believe in afterlife. I believe I got one shot. I'm, I'm trying to live up to my potential. And my kids are biologically and actually the legacy and my grandkids after that. And, and so, you know, the world is incomplete. The world's in, un, unjust. The world has problems. Did I do something to make it better the time I had here? That's how I judge them. I don't want to have regrets. And for those people that are sitting here afraid to try, afraid to fail, afraid of embarrassment, afraid of losing money, afraid of losing social status, losing other people's money, go talk to your grandparents, go to an old age home and ask seniors what their biggest regret in life is. And not one will mention something they failed at. They'll all mention something they failed to do, something they failed to try. Don't live a life of regrets. Go out there and try because when you do something, even if you fail, you don't end up where you started. You either earn or you learn and you will continue to learn and you will fail your way forward. I mean, that's how Jeff Bezos could lose money year after year after year with Amazon and come out the other side of it as the richest man in history. It's about taking those chances because the learning happens when you're doing something that others aren't willing to do. And your initial idea may be a horrible idea, but as you get deeper into the woods, you will discover the treasure. And that's where your fortune lies. What about if there was a magic trick named after you? Would that be a good one? <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, 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 or something. When, when I was young, I sold a trick to Doug Henning and I thought that was like the greatest moment of my life up until then. Um, you know, to, to invent something in that space. But yeah, you know, I guess on the fantasy list, my bucket list, I did at 50, I wrote a bucket list and hundred things I wanted to accomplish in life. And I'm down to, you know, less than five or six on the list. So I feel blessed. I got to make a new list and add more challenges. But now my, my fantasy would be, I'd love to have one of my paintings in a major museum. I just, to me, that would just be just kind of just an amazing thing. Well, here's a little hack for that. You could always just carry it in, put it on the wall temporarily, and still accomplish that. Might oh, not be, yeah. funny, but it, in technical, technically it yeah. is. Well, an easier hack is have any of the friends that endow these museums with millions of dollars say, you, you got to buy yeah. this, put this guy's painting. But no, I want it on the merit of the painting, not on, you know, <laughs> not, not on the other way to do it. I'm just trying to help, man. I'm just yeah, trying. I appreciate it, brother.
All right, so you know what time it is. I told you, and you said you were ready. Let's hear some dad jokes, because you know this. This is my all-time favorite corny dad joke. What do you get when you throw a piano down a mine shaft? A flat minor. <laughs> okay, that uh, is is definitely old school. You got some. Um, oh, you want on. some current ones? Yeah, let's go. I mean, you're you're a disruptor. Let's get some crypto <laughs> jokes, some tech jokes. How, how, how do you weigh millennials? In Instagrams. Ah, that's a good one. I like that. Uh, what else we got? Uh, did you hear about the kidnapping in school? It's okay. He woke up. Um, <laughs> you got a routine. Let's keep going. Hey, when I was when I was in college, I I did try making it as a standup. Uh, uh, but there was this other guy who could be stoned out of his mind and get on stage and just kill night after night. So I always told my friends I gave up stand-up comedy because I couldn't be Robin Williams. That Robin was just was that really him? I mean, he was yeah, in- yeah, yeah. It was just like talent from another planet, a, a unique gift. Only another du- another kind of dude, that's for sure. Uh, let's see. Those were uh, no, that's, oh, that's- I'll, I'll, I'll close with the it's a Stephen Wright line, but it's 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 genius. It really bugs me that there's only one company that's allowed to sell Monopoly. That's got to kill in the board meetings. <laughs> uh, so did I Did I pass the dad joke? You passed. Of course you did. So, you know, that's the thing about dad jokes. Look, they're puns and they're told between dads, but like there's age levels. I mean, some are like goofy and like, you know, hey, why, um, why, did, why did the guy take an extra, um, an extra pair of socks here you go. Why should you take an extra pair of socks when you go play golf? Why? In case you get a hold one. <laughs> Stuff like that. So it just depends on your audience. I mean, you just got to have some in the chamber and for some older people, like, you know, some of these other ones. And then for the younger kids, like, uh, you know, the kids like, like what's brown and sticky. And it's like, what? And I say a stick. And then I, they're like, uh, uh, uh. so, you know, there's just the, the level. Oh, I tried to teach my granddaughter this one. What's blue and smells like red paint? Blue paint. Blue paint. <laughs> I, here's a Philly joke. I used, I used to say at the real estate meetings, what's red and bad for your teeth? What? A brick. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, from Philly, that would go over well. And it has levels. Yeah. So it depends that, on your That's saying. a South Philly joke. Uh, <laughs> well, listen, uh, you were great. I'm honored that you were my guest today. I'm, I'm a fan and I, I got your books and um, I, I would suggest to any entrepreneur watching this anywhere that you should pick this up because it's definitely going to have you thinking on different levels, especially if you start doing that problem solving exercise. I, like I said, because I'm in the middle of solving some problems, I'm using this as my uh, my index to go back to here and there when I run into something. So I thank you very much for giving this gift to the world. Thanks for sharing your audience with me and everybody. Thanks for spending the time with us. Hey, all you entrepreneurs and dadpreneurs. I just wanted to say thanks for listening. Be sure to check out the YouTube channel for past episodes. Show me some love on Facebook and Instagram. And if you really want to be a guest on my show, no problem. Just email the dadnextdoortv at gmail.com and we'll take care of you. All the information you need is on the show notes of this episode. This is Jason, a.k.a. The Dad Next Door, signing out. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.